Do you know who James Hemings was? He was Thomas Jefferson's enslaved cook. Listen to Ashbel McElveen, the founder of the James Hemings Society, today on Tip of the Tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We are here today with Ashbel McElveen, chef, bon vivant, TV personality on both sides of the Atlantic, and passionate historian and founder of the James Hemming Society. Welcome, Ashbel. Thank you very much, Liz. I'm glad to be here. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your story and how you got involved with food and cooking, and then we can talk about James Hemming and how you got involved in the society and had the idea to form it. But start with yourself. How'd you get started in food? Well, I grew up with a family in South Carolina that thought good food was a birthright. And literally from the baby pablum, everything <laughs> was made with, with real care and with real ingredients. And the family was a stickler for making things from real ingredients. So we didn't open cans and, and all of that. We actually put up everything we ate in the winter. We put it up in the summer. So. It came from that kind of family, and, and it, it actually served me well in my travels. You must have also had great wanderlust because looking at your bio, you were, you were traveling when you were quite young. Yes, I, um, I had an incredible case of wanderlust, and it started literally when I had a French professor in college tell me that Blacks don't speak French. And I thought, what? <laughs> I said, well, well let, me, let me go to France. Let me just see for myself. Well, he certainly mustn't have ever been there. <laughs> well, he, he, that's, a, he, that's a long story. We uh, <laughs> reconciled years later and became a good friends, actually. Okay, so yeah. you, that, that's, that sent you to France, and what did you discover there? Well, I discovered that people were just as obsessed with good food as my family was. <laughs> so so I, I felt very equal to them. <laughs> and you were, yeah, you were kindred spirits, yeah. Oh, oh absolutely, on the food side, definitely kindred spirits. I was uh, 19 years old. Um, wide-eyed and excited about actually being a, another member of my family to, to travel abroad. Um, the for, for, although mine was for a non-war purpose. Right, yes. Yeah, yeah. But my father and my great uncle Charlie, uh, uncle Charlie uh, was in France in 1919 as a soldier 
in the First World War, and my father was in Paris in 1945 as a soldier in the Second World War. My and father they, was too. Really? Yes. Okay. Uh -huh. okay, and I, that, I actually yeah. had the pleasure of going back to France with him and going to Taiwan with my father. Um, and oh my goodness. That it, must was, it was so wonderful. And all of the waiters came over and thanked him for his service. Oh, that's, that's, uh, very, that's wonderful because the French are definitely very appreciative of the Americans' effort to, to save them and to step into the war. Definitely appreciative. And I, I'm glad your father had, have, had that experience of being thanked. Yeah, it and was great. You, and that you could actually share a meal with him at Taiwan all along. Yeah. That is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Did he enjoy the meal? Oh, he had a wonderful time. Yes, yes. Oh, that is that is precious. That is precious. I started my journey as a 19-year-old. I was an exchange student in Aix-en-Provence mm -hmm. at a, a university program called the University d'Aix-Marseille. And I was a student and uh, spent, I was meant to spend one year, but I spent two. I stayed for two. And a whole new universe of food and cooking opened up to me. So did you already know that this was the profession that you wanted when you were studying? Or was that something that simply just took over as you continued your studies? It took over. <laughs> I, had, I had no intention of being a cook or, or you know, and, and absolutely out of the question, being a chef in a restaurant. Uh-huh. And, um, and slowly, What did you want slowly, to be? What did you want to be? Actually, I was studying history. Okay. And I thought I was a writer. Uh -huh. <laughs> I actually thought I was a writer, and I, I spent one very hot summer in Aix-en-Provence in a little one-bedroom apartment at the top of a building across from the square, <laughs> um, and it was hot, and I was reading Dostoevsky. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the amazing thing that happened there because it was so hot, I would, there was a market in the market in the square and along with a big fountain. So I would buy a watermelon oh. and float it in the fountain to cool. <laughs> so I went down one morning, bought the watermelon and put it in the fountain. So everybody knows it's your watermelon. And right, right. When I go back down when it was supposed to be cool and I was quite hot and of course no air conditioning, Right. And I went down, and there was no watermelon. Oh. And I looked around, I walked around the whole fountain, which was fairly a decent size. So I walked yeah. around the whole yeah. thing, and I'm turning around in a circle, scratching my head. And, and everybody was looking at me. I noticed that everybody was looking in the whole square. They were all looking. And I thought, what's going on? All of a sudden, some some 10-year-old uh, kid races across the square, jumps into the fountain, lifts up the grate, and my watermelon sprang up. 
Oh. Everybody started laughing. <laughs> Le Marie-Kay, là. Oh, so pastec. Oh, so pastec. And it was just like a, a great memory of XL Propose. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then you spent two years there, part of it working in restaurants? Um, actually, yeah, it, I, I worked part-time. I, I actually talked my way into mm -hmm. the kitchen uh -huh. of um, a hotel on the boulevard in Aix-en-Provence, uh -huh. and it was called the Negro Coast Hotel. And they were just curious that I would want to learn something about French food. Mm -hmm. So they let me hang around. Mm -hmm. And it was really kind of the first kind of start to kind of see how food was done in a restaurant setting, because I had not known that. Although my family, and, and especially on my father's side, had been involved with producing fine food for generations. And it was a time during segregation when most political functions uh, throughout the South would have a member of my family in charge of the food. And that was a reality of the South. And uh, of, when there was a big political function, they'd give a barbecue, and that was my father's bailiwick. He made, uh, yeah. he made great barbecue, great moonshine, and even better bourbon. <laughs> so, so you had a great training of your palate when you were a child and growing up in that family, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I did. I, um, I remember very clearly my great aunts sitting around when we were all canning peaches for the summer. And my great aunt Laura, who was my father's aunt, and she cooked at the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C. And when we were peeling the, I had a, you, you had a bushel of peaches sat in front of you. And it was your job to peel those peaches and with the thinnest skin possible. Mm -hmm. So my aunt was fussing at me. She said, you're giving all my peaches to the hogs, which meant, <laughs> <laughs> meant you're leaving too much flesh inside the skin. And she showed me, she said, this is the last time I'm going to show you. And so I was looking at her to, you know, really understand what she was saying. And she said, stop looking in my mouth and look at what I'm doing. <laughs> And I, you know, and, and I now understand that was to ensure, believe your eyes and not just what I say. Yeah, yeah. And that was an integral part of learning recipes and passing recipes down. It was a revelation. And I understood at the same time, it, it, nowadays there's a big debate with young chefs about telling where the recipes come from. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of young chefs think that they invented everything, but they haven't. <laughs> like, sit down for a second. And they don't like describing the recipe or its origin 
except for their iteration of it. And I must have my iteration because it's my branding, it's my branding. And I think it's a, a curious thing that a lot of young chefs mistakenly have because the richness in the recipe is in the telling, the setting up, the heading right. of the recipe. And it gives it gravitas and uh, terroir, because I believe that recipes have terroir. Right. And so, um, yeah. So I, I don't want our time to slip away without sort of slipping right into the story of your interest in James Hemming and creating the James Hemming Society. Yes, I, um, I cooked a dinner and actually it was the first dinner of African-American chefs at the Beard House, way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth in 1993. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I dedicated the dinner to Thomas Jefferson and the Africans that cooked in his kitchen. I knew nothing about James Hemings. I had heard a rumor that Jefferson's brother's son was taken to France with him to learn how to be a French chef. And, and of course, that was, you know, mistaken information. The, uh, James Hemings was actually half-brother to Jefferson's wife, Martha. They had the same father, John Wells. And uh, at the age of, I think, uh, nine or 10, uh, James and the whole Hemings family came to live at Jefferson's Botticello when, uh, when John Wales died. And so it, it was soon after, uh, a year or so after that dinner, that I had what Southerners call a visitation from a hand. <laughs> and a lot of people don't know what that is, but it's a not too contented ghost. And um, and I, I remember clearly I was asleep and I woke up, sat in the middle of the bed in a cold sweat. And all I could hear ringing in my ears was, how could you of all people forget me? And I had no idea what that meant. And for days and days I searched and I, I could say that I was on a train in France reading When Done Gone, the parody book that Alice Randall did on Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, everything clicked. I knew who was talking to me. I made all the connections then. And I was living in London at the time and visiting friends in Southwest France. And when I got back to London, I was like, you've got to get back to the States. <laughs> you've got to get back. And, uh, and I made haste back to the States in 2014 and founded the James Hemming Society. And I am very pleased that we're looking to preserve the incredible influence 
um, that James Hemings has had on our food and foodways, but also to explore all the other unsung cooks and venters and farmers and the of all hues from enslaved Irish women to enslaved Africans that helped to create that numbo that is regional Southern cooking. So tell everybody who James Hemings is or was. James Hemings as a chef accompanied, well, he accompanied Jefferson to France for the express purpose of Jefferson wanting him trained as a French chef. And he was sent to Chateau Chantilly for his training. And at the time, Chateau Chantilly represented the best food in France. It was the most celebrated table in France because it had been the uh, home of Chef Vital, who was very famous in when the king was visiting Chateau Chantilly in, uh, it was King Louis Fourteenth who was visiting and the fish course didn't arrive. So Vital committed suicide. And because of the shame of not having a dish served to the king. And so that was a type of atmosphere that years later, James Hemings trained in. And he excelled in his training in less than three years at Chateau Chantilly. He became a master chef, what the French call chef de cuisine. And he took over the, <clears throat> the kitchens at Jefferson's residence on the Champs-Élysées was the Hotel Longiac. And James helmed the kitchen of 10 French-speaking uh, assistants. And he <clears throat> cooked um, some incredible meals for Jefferson's salons, to which Jefferson had invited royalty and the most discerning palates in France. And they were all quite happy with James Hemings's cooking. So that was the testament of how good James Hemings was. But his story is, is much broader than that. So tell us a little bit more about the story. Well, the broader case of the story was that it was the time of the Enlightenment. The 1780s in France was a time of immense change, both politically, socially, but also in the food. There was a mini food revelation, revolution in the 1780s, where such things as foie gras was, was popularized and, and, and invented. Also, Dijon mustard, prepared mustard. French fries, all uh, meringues, and uh, all kinds of, of innovative styles of cooking. And it all centered around the kitchen at Chateau Chantilly, um, which is celebrated for whipped cream. Chantilly, creme chantilly, the, the French call it, even though 
it wasn't invented at the chateau, but, but it's named for the chateau because the chateau was the most famous place that it was cooked. And so it, it really <clears throat> points back to what's happened in America with Jefferson's kitchen being so influential. It's the same thing that um, happened with whipped cream at Chantilly. So in a kitchen that's well-respected, dishes come out and they're referred to as original dishes from that kitchen. And in many cases, they're not. But James was in a situation where he was completely free in France. He was a free man. He could have declared his freedom officially and legally by walking into the Admiralty Court in Paris. And of the 300 declarations from the Admiralty Court for enslaved people declaring their freedom, no one was ever denied. But if he had done that, in the age of enlightenment, where Thomas Jefferson was a darling of the enlightenment, but also the enlightenment, the major figures in the enlightenment were virulently anti-slavery. And the James Hemings knew this. So he did not declare his freedom to protect the reputation and the credit, the young credit of the young new United States. And so, I, and I, I think it's, a, it's an act of patriotism. Um, <laughs> And so what, what are your plans for the James Hemings Society as we, as we go forward, besides telling the story of James Heming himself and all the wonderful things that he did? Well, we're, we're looking to engage the public on educating ourselves and other people by archiving traditional family recipes. That's one of the initiatives um, that we're very keen on doing. And we're working very much to put that living library together, which would collect artifacts and recipes and, and oral stories of meals and of notable cooks and families. And I'm excited to be working on pulling that, that whole effort together Mm -hmm. and really announce also a podcast that I'm going to be doing to kind of help that effort. And it's going to be called Ghosts at the Table. And we're going to be looking to collect and, and archive all of those wonderful stories that are out there and recipes that are out there. And these are pre-Campbell soup being added to your food. We <laughs> um, jiffy on your cornbread, and nobody's ever actually tried to archive and collect those traditional family recipes. And I'm very excited to be working on that with the James Hemming Society, and in particular with Therese Nelson, who is who is one of our directors on the James Hemming Society and uh, working very closely with her and with other young chefs to instigate this valuable piece of history. And so when can we expect your next podcast? Well, I'm not quite sure, 
but in the next couple of weeks, I will be starting, and I hopefully I'm going to be starting with the Southern Food and Beverage Podcast Network. Oh, there's no question about that. You'll be on the Nitty Grits Network for sure. And looking to branch out from there, and and we are setting up the James Hemming Society uh, website, jameshemmingssociety.org. And you can go there and, and you'll be able to listen to the podcast. I don't know if I'm going to be doing it weekly or bi-weekly, but it will be exciting. I'm looking forward to not only exploring the incredible culinary figures from the uh, past, but also, you know, exploring some of the interesting culinary figures in this century or in the in the past century like um what is his name it, it just escaped me and that's what age does sometimes <laughs> don't know it doesn't come up right away but it's leroy haynes leroy mm-hmm. was, um, he attended morehouse college and he went to paris in the uh 50s and opened a restaurant called Haynes. Mm-hmm. And when I was a 19-year-old studying at the Sorbonne, <laughs> I had a job at Haynes, and my job was, was to come in every afternoon and start making at least five apple pies. Mm-hmm. That was my job. He wanted me to make apple pies, and oddly enough, I'm still not a great baker, but, but I made really good uh, apple pies for him by his recipe because he was, he was not, he did not suffer fools, okay? <laughs> not, not at all. But that, that was my first real restaurant experience. And it was, his restaurant was literally the unofficial American embassy in Paris and everybody all all the major stars minor stars luminaries writers poets artists all congregated at Haynes and and I was able to see peeping through the curtain a lot of notables well that sounds really really exciting I think we've kind of come to the end of our time now. So I want to thank you so much for doing this with me. And I cannot wait until your podcast is up and going. Um, It's just really a, a fun way, I think, to explore things together with somebody else every week or every other week or however often you do it. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And the podcast name will be Ghosts at the Table. And thank you so much, Liz, for inviting me. And more information at the jameshemmingsociety.org. Is that right? Yeah, .org and on your uh, podcast network. Of course. It will definitely be on our podcast network. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Liz. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. 
For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Liz Williams.